At Skyview, we strive to love God and others through generous hospitality and meaningful friendship. For more information about Skyview Church, please visit us at www.skyviewchurch.ca. Let's just bow our heads this morning. Father, we are so grateful to be in your presence. We recognize uh, this morning that we gather here for that very reason, to together celebrate who you are, to bring worship to you, to bless your holy name. Uh, Father, we pray this morning that there would be a simplicity and a clarity in our worship, uh, that we have come into this place together as brothers and sisters in Christ to give you glory and to worship you. Pray this morning that throughout the service there would be not only a sense of your presence, but a movement of your presence from person to person. We recognize that we come into worship with different life experiences. Our weeks may have varied. We may have had stresses or challenges. It may have been a week that has been demanding. But Father, we come in as we are before you to recognize that when we come together as your people, we are reminded that you are with us. You are with us in every circumstance of life. You are with us in the good and the hard times of life. And we can trust that you will be with us until the end of time. So this morning, may your Holy Spirit indeed speak to us in the, 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 the sacredness of this moment. Uh, Father, we, we, we are not just speaking about emotions this morning. We are asking for the very real presence of God to make a definitive difference in our lives. As we reach out to you, would you reach down to us and would you live and work within our lives and through us? In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. I'm reminded throughout um, the service this morning uh, about a song that calls us back to the heart of worship. And it's one of those songs that speaks about the simplicity and how we can make things complicated. And I think it's true. I think that sometimes we need to be drawn back to what matters most. Worship is not, after all, uh, just music. Um, It is uh, something that the Apostle Paul says uh, we ought to do with everything in us. And uh, I don't think I always worship well, to be honest. I don't think I always worship with everything in me. But I thank God, and I hope you are thankful, for opportunities every Sunday to be reminded about what matters most. And it is in the process of singing, in the process of worship, that I think we are drawn into and, again, saturated and and placed back into order as God has intended. Uh, the, The longer I'm a Christian, the more I recognize the importance of this time of worship to reorient us to what matters most. You know, in, in our day-to-day life, we, we are tempted to worship so many other things, to ascribe what Tim Keller calls an inordinate affection on things. You see, our problem isn't that, that, that for many of us, that we love bad things <laughs> or that we love sinful things, but our problem is, is that we have an inordinate, which means an exaggerated and overinflated love of good things. And when God is not the ultimate in our life, when he is not the number one in our life, we cannot love others as we ought. In fact, the, the great commandment that Jesus gives us is to love God first. And it is in that, in that loving of God that we learn how to love others. It is in that ultimate uh, place that he has within our life that we know how to love others properly. 
Um, this is not part of my message, but I have to say to you, it was a revelation to me when I realized that my marriage is not the ultimate place to experience all the love that I need, want, or desire. It is a wonderful place to experience love. And I hope my wife would say the same. And for those of you who can see her, she is grinning from ear to ear because I'm such a lovely husband to her. But even in making marriage an ultimate in our culture, some of us have searched for that which only comes through making Jesus number one. You know, one of the things that I I learned in my own life through the loss of family is that there's there's a way in which... God taught me through the loss um, much about myself, much about my affection, much about the way that I love. I, I, I have to be honest, I think that humanly speaking, most of us love with reciprocity in mind. We, we love with a desire to have love returned to us. Uh, when love is unmet with us, we know what happens. We, we search sometimes in places that are harmful, that are detrimental. Young people, when love is unmet within them, they tend to, to, to look for it in, 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 in maybe not the proper relationships or, or to look for it in substance abuse or in all kinds of things. And we are not so different to young people. But when love is rightly ordered in our life, when Jesus is ultimate, then even the loss of that which we love greatly will not ruin us. You, you know how you know when something is inordinate in your life? If you're desperately clinging to it, and if it is taken from you today, it will ruin you. You know how something has become the idol, the supremacy, the ultimate in your life. Ask yourself the question, what is it that consumes my time, my energy, my emotions, to the point that if I lost it today, I would feel that I've lost everything. The Apostle Paul puts it this way. He says, for to me, to live is Christ. I want to frame that as a question for you. I want to ask you the question very simply. For you, what does it mean to live? Uh, the Apostle paints for us a picture that, that listen, when, it, when we speak about Christian faith, when we speak about this journey that God has called us unto, he's speaking about the primacy of Jesus within our lives. And I have to say to you that I desire, I am living toward making him constantly in my everyday life my number one. Uh, If you have your Bibles, would you turn with me to John chapter 12? And I'll be very concise this morning. And all God's people said, Amen. Reading from verse 20, and I think I'm only going to read till verse... We'll read till verse 33. I'll only be speaking... On a select few of the verses. John chapter 12, verses 20 uh, through 33. Now there were some Greeks among those who went up to worship at the feast. Uh, The feast is Passover. They came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, with a request. Sir, they said, we would like to see Jesus. I I, I just want to interrupt my own reading of it to say to you that uh, this Wanting to see Jesus is a theme that carries throughout the Gospel of John. And it means more than just seeing him. It, it at the very least, me, means meeting with him. And at the most, means we want to be his disciple. And Philip went to tell Andrew, who are disciples of Jesus. And Andrew and Philip, in turn, told Jesus. Some good social networking happening right here. 
Jesus replied, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. The word glorified here refers to both his crucifixion, his death, and his resurrection. Now I tell you the truth, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. The man who loves his life will lose it, while the man who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Whoever serves must follow me, and where I am, my servant also will be. My father will honor the one who serves me. Now my heart is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? No, it was for this very reason I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven, I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. The crowd that was there and heard it said it had thundered. Others said an angel had spoken to him. But Jesus said, this voice was for your benefit and not mine. Now is the time for judgment on this world. Now the prince of this world will be driven out. But I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all men to myself. He said this to show the kind of death he was going to die. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Greeks want to see Jesus. When I did the research on this, I said, who are the Greeks? Some suggest it is, uh, it is proselytes. It's those who became Jewish, but they are, rent, uh, they, they are not Jewish by birth. Um, others suggested that, 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 that it wasn't really Greeks, but maybe Jews who came from those regions. And I couldn't find anybody that really had a definitive answer of who the Greeks were. But what we do know is if you study the gospel comprehensively, you do realize there's a theme that runs throughout the gospel. Many themes, but one of the themes is simply this. The mission and the purpose of God is not only extended to the Jews, but it includes all people. In fact, the early church's mission would go beyond the Jewish people and would include the Gentile people, of which most of us here are are probably, uh, in those times, would be considered to be Gentile. But what is significant about this, as I paint some context for you before I share a few points, is that these Greeks ask two of Jesus' disciples for an audience with him. It is significant because when you read in John chapter 1, you will find that these two men were one, two of the first that Jesus called. And when Jesus called him, this is what Jesus says, I want you to come and see it's, it's almost like John from the beginning gives us a perspective of what discipleship entails. Discipleship is about coming to Jesus and seeing who he is. Now, I know that sounds very rudimentary, but I think that we have many approaches today to how we want to see God. Many of us believe that there's certain ways in which to see him and to know him. And in fact, in our dominant culture, you will know that there is a very popular sentiment that there are many ways to experience him and to know him. In John, he begins by saying that Jesus existed before all time. And John puts right in your face, if you're a Christian, a a, a very demanding truth to comprehend and believe. He's saying, listen, the way to see God is to see who Jesus is. I want you to understand that, that for many of us, and maybe I can speak uh, to parents in particular, that our kids are growing up in a culture that will constantly push them towards the general and not the specific. 
In fact, your education, our education system suggests to us that a broad breadth of knowledge is good. And in that broadness, it defines, uh, it defines that, 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 that truth generally is experienced wherever you may find it in strands here and there. But there is nothing in, in the dominant culture and even as education is presented itself, and I know we have a lot of educators here, that suggest that you can definitively know things. In fact, the moment you definitively know anything these days, you are questioned, how can you know? How do you know? It's hard to reconcile Christianity with dominant culture, and certainly with the Gospel of John. John comes out of the gates and says, this is God in flesh, this is Jesus. And then from then on in, every encounter that people have with him is an encounter to see who he is. This question, we want to see Jesus. I thought about that and I said to myself, there are many times in my own life that I said, I just need to see Jesus right now. You know, in my circumstances or my challenges or my problems, I just want to see Jesus right now. And I started to think, as I prepared this message, it's one thing to give context, but I want to be relevant to where we are in life. And I said to myself, what are some of the things that keeps me from seeing Jesus? And then I thought, maybe it's better to start with the Bible. And what are some of the things that kept the people of the biblical day from seeing who Jesus truly was. One of the things for the Jews were, they had expectations of Jesus that was unmet in the person of Jesus. Simply put, they had hoped that Jesus would be a political redeemer, he would free them from their problems, he would change about things, he would deal with Rome, that he would set them free. And when Jesus did not live up to their expectations, some of them had a big problem with that. In fact, it's not only the Jews out there, but the Jews close to him. John the Baptist, considered to be his second cousin, depending on who you read, finds himself in a dungeon. He's about to be beheaded, and he sends word with his disciples to Jesus, with the question, tell us again, are you really the one we waited for? You see, I think, I think many of us want to see Jesus. But I think that one of the stumbling blocks to the authentic experience and knowledge and experience of Jesus Christ are the expectations that we have placed upon him that Jesus seemingly throughout the gospel has very little interest in living into. Let me put it to you a different way. I think that when you hope for a Jesus to primarily serve you, it is like looking into a dark well where the reflection of the moonlight may catch an angle of the water. And as you look deeply down in your attempt to see him, all you really are looking at is a reflection of yourself. I really believe that at Easter in particular, we are challenged to let go of all the things we want Jesus to be that Jesus does not want to be. Um, Is this making sense, Ruthann? You can tell me afterwards, okay? Uh, the, 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 the idea here is that these Greeks want to see him, and, and, and maybe this will help you to understand where I'm coming up with this idea or this thought. They had just seen Lazarus miraculously raised from the dead. There's a buzz. At this point, 
Historically, people are aware that this, there's something about this man. He, he can make things happen. He can, he can do the miraculous. There's enough of a reputation that he has that you will attract all kinds of people. But not everyone who comes wanting to see Jesus wants to truly see Jesus for who he is. I believe that Christianity is a journey into discovering who Jesus really is on a daily basis with each and every one of our lives. I think that there's a call that comes to disciples that says, will you open your eyes consistently? In this very same gospel, there's a woman who doesn't see Jesus. She's a Samaritan woman, a Gentile woman. She appears at a well uh, at the wrong time of day. And the scripture would have us believe that the reason she does that is because she doesn't want to be seen in public. And what does Jesus do? He shows up. He asks her for water. And in this weird conversation of, of misunderstanding, eventually her eyes are opened and she sees Jesus for the first time. In fact, her sight of Jesus so deeply impacts her that she radically changes her community. You know, she had perspectives. I mean, Jesus didn't have a discussion on worship, right? Do you remember this, Tim? I know you're right with me. Um, you know, <laughs> did I just wake you up? That's okay. Um, you know, Jesus and her have this discussion of worship around the well. And, and she says, well, you know, our ancestors said, this is where you worship. And Jesus says, listen, this is what true worship is. And then when Jesus starts to tell her about herself, something registers, something opens. I would like to put it this way. Her eyes open and she sees the Messiah. And she runs and she tells everybody. And, and things change. And you know, uh, what I love about the Samaritan story, of course, is, is that even if you're not expecting or even wanting to see him, Jesus Jesus can show up in your life. He can show up in your life and he can reveal himself. You know, if I think about my own life and my circumstances, where I've come from, I can list probably a hundred things off the top of my head that would make me less likely to see the Jesus in the Bible and to, to not believe in him. I'm sure there's many reasons in most of our lives that we, we, we can say, you know, will keep us from seeing him for who he is. But I love the fact that he doesn't just leave it up to us. He's this revealing Christ that comes and shows himself. But anyway, enough about the Jews and the Gentiles and what kept them. Let's talk about today. I think one of the things that keeps us from seeing Jesus is that we don't believe deeply enough that we can trust him. In this culture that we live in, self-preservation, self-provision, making it, doing so that I can have. I loved what, I loved what Kerry said the last week. I don't know if you paid attention, but Kerry said something profound. He says, most of us in our Christian faith don't try to really live into this Christian faith. And I'm paraphrasing, so Kerry will correct me later this week if I get it wrong. But you know, he said, most of us won't try because we have, in our culture in particular, made everything about expertise, you know. We need expertise in almost every area of your life in order to be good at it. You know, if we're going to be good disciples, we need a good disciple maker. You know, if we're going to be good at this, if we're going to be evangelism, we need good evangelism training. And what it's essentially done for so many of us, it has incapacitated us from actually living into this faith. You know, in Jesus Christ, there is the invitation of a Messiah to us that says, listen, you have all you need in me if you are willing to see me for who I am. If you are willing to let go and consistently so. 
the modern day obstacle to seeing Jesus for many of us is that Jesus is not pragmatic. You know, he doesn't always make everything work out nice. You see, what most of us want is we want a Jesus who makes our life work out right. You see, what I tend to, and when I say most of us, I include myself, what I tend to want is I want a Jesus who's going to live into Stuart's worldview and lifestyle and somehow move me along so that I can possess all the mountains that I want to climb and that I can live through all the values that I need. You see, what Jesus is when we allow him to be him is he is not pragmatic. Nothing is pragmatic about self-denial and dying. Nothing about Jesus suggests to you that, that if we can just somehow get a hold of him, he'll make everything better. And, and yeah, I know, I'm sounding like a resounding gong. Very scriptural. <laughs> but what Jesus do you want to see? I want to see the real Jesus. I, I'm not suggesting, of course, that we don't at times, but I... I do think that many times we trade him in for a version that would work best to fit our life. You see, he does not allow self-preservation to define the choices he makes, but instead he demonstrates through his death that the life that is given away has far more value, far more worth, far more power than many of us believe. In a culture that says to us, the way to get is to run it down. Jesus say, says to all of us today, the way to become, the way to possess, is through losing and giving away. If you want a non-practical sermon, here it is. Jesus responds to the request from the Greeks to see him by saying that the time for his glorification has come. And then he gives us three very quick visual images or pictures of what it means to live the self-denying life. In verse 24 he says, very truly, I tell you, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. Augustine said he spoke of himself. This is of Jesus. He himself was the grain that had to die and be multiplied, to suffer death through the unbelief of the Jews and to be multiplied in the faith of many nations. A solitary kernel of wheat, when it falls to the ground and dies, will bring an abundance of life. I thought long and hard about this. I'm not a farmer. I don't plant things well. I don't understand a lot of what happens with plants. I do know that if you cut their branches, sometimes it grows back. But the analogy that Jesus used would be rich to the people listening. They would understand wheat. 
They will understand that what actually helps wheat grow is that if it, if it breaks off the stalk and falls into the ground and it's covered by dirt, that it has the potential to reproduce itself and many so. And the point of this, this, this illustration that Jesus makes is to teach people what the self-giving life will look like by pointing at himself. Of course, we know Jesus would die on the cross. That's what Easter is about. Easter is about us celebrating through the Lord's table what it means to serve a Savior who would give himself away. And yet, when we labor on how Jesus tells us, he's not only telling us of his self-giving, but he invites us later on this to be the same in the way we live. I started to think about what it meant for me to die to some things. What would it mean for me to be self-giving? How would my self-giving actually bring about the life and the fruit in others? And I think about the example of Jesus, and I realize this, that the person who gives their life away does not do so fatalistically, but does it for a deep love of many more. And I realize that one of the things that holds me back from living as Jesus is selfishness. I'd rather live for me. In fact, uh, let me bring it closer home. I think... As a Christian, I'd rather be my, have my Christianity just be about me. In fact, it's so incredibly hard for many of us to believe in Jesus when he doesn't do what we want him to do. And yet, the way to peace and knowing him, the way to experiencing who he is, the way to seeing Jesus is the way of self-sacrifice and giving away. I am learning how to give away in my home. (laughs) Kids help me greatly with giving away. Um, They teach me what God is like, I think, in some ways, although I'm not equating myself with God, just a second there. Uh, I'm learning in my marriage with my wife what it means to to love her in a self-giving way. You know what I realized about self-giving love? It always cost me something. You see, I can give financially, and I need to provide for my wife. And I think a lot of us in our culture think that the, the, the self-giving we need to do is, is provision. But you see, giving of myself is a completely different thing than to just giving what I possess and what I have. You want to know how impractical this lifestyle is? Jesus is saying, listen, let's just take our mind off the guilt that most of us feel when we talk about how much we have for a second. And ask ourselves this very honest, real question. If Jesus is calling us to give of ourselves, what does it mean in the relationships we have with one another? Do you know you can be in a relationship and you can be so selfish and yet you can provide everything? Do you know you can be a part of a community of faith in which you pay your tithes? Amen? I need a deeper conviction on that. And yet you're not giving yourself to the body of Christ. Do you know that that if you think about giving as being something that you do out of the plenty that you already have, you missed what the point is here. Self-giving is comprehensive. It is everything. It is all in. In fact, the cross says this to you and me. If we're going to live as Jesus, we need to give everything. You know why Christianity is hard? It is hard not because it's impractical. It's hard because it demands everything. 
Jesus asks us for absolutely everything. You know, and, and, and it's the most impractical message because I, I almost feel like as a pastor, if I could preach this way, love Jesus and hold on to everything at the same time, that would be a good posture for me. But it's not biblical. It cuts to, to the chase. It cuts to my heart and it makes me convicted more than it lets me be at peace. And I have to ask myself, Father, in what ways am I not living completely surrendered to you? In what way am I not giving my life over? This morning, as we prepare to participate in the sacrament of communion, we have an opportunity to reenact what we hope to do. We have an opportunity to say to the Lord this morning, as we eat these emblems that, these emblems that remind us that you gave your everything, that we want to do the same. But self-giving always begins with God. God so loved the world that he gave his son. It is that God that gives himself to us when we participate in communion that says to me and you, the way to life is through how I give and what I bring. But then there's a scripture that is very hard to understand, I think, personally. And you've come to know me well enough that I stretch well. I, 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 you know, I punch well above my weight class on, on sermons. You know, and I pray for much grace. But verse 25, it says, Anyone who loves their life will lose it, while anyone who hates their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. I heard one of the people that I respect greatly speak on the subject, and he said, he made a statement that I think helps me to understand it. I think biblically we all understand the Bible uses hyperboles, it uses exaggeration. It certainly is not here to be read as a, as a means of self-abasement and hating everything about who you are. Uh, it, it's not painting that picture, but it is drawing a contrast between the kind of life that we are called to love. The kind of life that we are called to love is the, lo- the life that Jesus Christ demonstrates for us. And here is how we fail. I alluded to this when I started to talk to you, and I think it still, it still really makes sense to me today, and it's still convicting me today. I think for most of us, the challenge here is not to be convinced of what is wrong. I think in our culture in particular, the biggest sin is the sin of excess. I think that what clouds our Christian perspective is not uh, whether it's wrong to hit somebody or hurt somebody or steal from somebody. But what clouds our judgment and clouds our perspective of Jesus is when we put so much in other things that he no longer is the one we ultimately live for. I, um, when I got married 13 years ago, as beautiful as you were then, fell deeply in love with my wife. I mean, she took one look at me, I took one look at her, and I said... God wills it, you know. Uh, I got to be honest with you. I didn't do a lot of praying, confessionally. I just, I just, I just kind of jumped in, you know, head over heels. And yet, uh, I have to say to you, over the years, and I use my own life as an example because it's the safest. Uh, but over the years, have I come to understand and learn what it means to love my wife? You know what somebody recently said of marriage? He says. Every person who marries, marries a stranger. What marriage does is it acquaints you with the real person. (laughs) 
And then with the choice <laughs> as to whether you will continue to love that real person. <laughs> but you know, as I have lived in this love relationship with my wife, as she's got to know who the real Stew is, will the real Stew show up? If ever, you know, uh, you know. I've heard this said over and over to me by God and in my relationship. Stu, it is the real you that I love. The real you. Not the you that you think you need to still become. Not the you that you still hope to grow in. And boy, do I need to grow. But it is the real you that I deeply love. You know what the cross does? The cross literally comes to us in that way and it says, listen folks, it is the real you as you sit here in all your brokenness, in all your weakness, in all your failings, in all your limitations that Jesus loved and died for. And it is when we come into that kind of reality of what the cross represents, that the, 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 the cross for us undresses everything and says, this is really who you are, but this is the Savior that I am. The one that would love for you, the, the, the one that would die for you, the one would stand in the place for you, the one that would give his all for you. This is who I am. I've always had the temptation in my marriage to make my wife the center of my universe. And I've realized the older I've become that Jesus should always be at the center. Now some of you are going, oh Stu, you need to love your wife more. Guess what's happening in my life? And she's here. You can speak to her afterwards if you hear if it's true. I'm learning to love my wife better. I'm learning not to put unfair expectations on her because I'm not looking for all my fulfillment in her. A woman was going through a real terrible time in her life, you know, career-wise, or relationship-wise. One failed relationship after another. She goes to a counselor. She had just become a new Christian in the meantime, and so she knew enough about Christianity to be dangerous in what she thought and, thought and said. She went to a counselor, wasn't a Christian counselor. Not that you can't go to non-Christian counselors, but she went to a non-Christian counselor, and she said, this is what's happening. Everything in my life is falling apart in my relationships, and I just feel so down on myself. I just feel so broken. I just feel like I can't figure things out. And here's the counselor's advice. The counselor's advice was simply this. You need to find something meaningful in life to pour yourself into. You need to find a career that you can follow, not just a job, and you need to do that. And she felt okay for a minute, but as she continued to have conversations with the pastor as a new Christian, she said to a pastor, and I love this, she said, you know what? You know what I, I, I struggle with in the counsel I've received is that the counselor was asking me to trade one thing for another. And in the trade, none of those things were ultimately going to fulfill me. And she said, as young as she was in her faith, that when I look at the life of Jesus... I realize that the ultimate fulfillment I seek comes in a crucified Christ who gave everything for me. How much of the life that we cling to is keeping us from the life we desire? Loving life in John does not refer to the proper sense of dignity and joy that one should have as a grace person. But it means a preference for a world and human glory that can blind a person 
to the life God desires for them. So not only must we love the right life and avert the life that takes us away from Jesus, but finally the scripture says, whoever serves me must follow me, and where I am, my servant also will be. My father will honor the one who serves me. You know, I I have in my life craved the presence of Jesus. I recognize the being I am, how I've been created. I'm very emotional. Surprise, right? Um, I lead from the heart. There's moments in my life where I've really just needed God to be close, and I really wanted a tangible God. I needed, I needed Jesus, not just, you know, not just, oh, there's, there's a Jesus out there. I needed Jesus right here. And it seems to me, at least it's been my experience, is that moments when I most wanted Jesus, when Jesus seemed most fleeting, seemed most absent. Anybody relate to that? You know what's interesting about the scriptures? The scripture says that you know, those, those who, who, who wants to serve must follow him. And that ultimately when you do, you are present with him. And I started to think about that in my own life. And I said, maybe, Stu, there's even a teaching here for you. That, that the moments that you desperately desire to see God, to know God, is so hampered when you're not following him. And what does it mean to follow Jesus? I think in this text, it simply means this living into that self-denying self-giving away life. When I start to live selfishly just for myself, you know, it creeps into every decision I make and all of my life's decisions, my values, my priorities, everything gets bent out of shape because Stuart is the one I'm living for. But when Jesus and God's glory is the one I'm living for, it takes me into his presence more and more. You know, to experience the presence of God is not only when you come to service and when the songs click and when the preacher's on and when things go well. To experience the presence of God is to follow him and to follow the example of Jesus. When we follow him, we may find ourselves doing the kinds of things that other disciples, when they looked at him, thought was ridiculous. Washing feet, talking about giving his life away and dying on a cross wasn't popular. But ultimately, death is not the final in the scripture. When you live a life that you're grasping onto, I think fundamentally what you're saying is this is as good as it's going to get. I better squeeze everything out of this life. But when you start to believe in the death and the resurrection, then you can even hold loosely to the things that matter so most now. You can even lose things that right now some of us can't imagine losing. And you can have a deep hope that transcends. One of the most compelling reasons to be a Christian is that the cross does not diminish the reality of living in a sinful world, a broken world, in which many of us will be hurt and experience loss. But more significantly, it teaches us that there's a hope that goes beyond it. Father, we thank you for your blessing upon us. We thank you for the sacrifice of Jesus. We thank you for the church. And we ask that you would continue to lead us in your ways. Amen.